0: And Father, we just pray that you would lead us in the study of your word one more time, Lord, that we would consider, Father, the things that lead us astray and lead us away from you. But Lord, I just pray as we get into your word that, Father, we would have hearts that would seek after you. And so, Lord, just bless our time in this place tonight. One more time, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you turn to greet your neighbors? Turn your Bibles to the Book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter forty-six. We'll be picking up at verse one. Now, again, Isaiah is speaking to, <clears throat> excuse me, Judah, some hundred and fifty years—really closer to some hundred years—before their captivity. He had previously been speaking about their release, some hundred and fifty years before the release, and key section of scripture is God Well, excuse me I'll read it in verse 9 it says remember the former things of old for I am God and there is no other I am God and there is none like me now this is the key portion declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all of my pleasure and so we have God that is working in the future of his people for their benefit not only that day, but for our benefit today. And so this word written somewhere generally around 700 B.C. needs to be applicable to our lives. And now, as he's speaking of the destruction and the judgment that is to come upon Babylon, we see that what set them apart, and what had drawn Israel to Babylon, to captivity, is because they sought after idols, and in essence, God was saying to Judah, if you want to worship idols and you want to be like the world, then I'll give you some time off with the world. And so what we need to consider, this needs to be more than just a history lesson, we need to consider, what's an idol in our life? What is an idol in our life today? Not so much a statue that you worship and bow down to, but what is it that takes our attention from God? And so, just been kind of thinking about this throughout the week, and I think one of the biggest idols, one of the biggest things that comes between us and a relationship with the Lord can be another person. Another person can become an idol in our life, not so much like an American idol kind of a thing, but just anybody that draws our attention. It's been my experience in ministry that I've seen a young woman who desires to be married, and she goes and she finds and develops a relationship with a young man who's not saved and that young man draws her away from the Lord and in essence that young man had become an idol in their life there could be things and stuff or the desires for things and stuff and that can become an idol in our life as that gets bigger in our life or more important to us as individuals than our relationship with Jesus Christ it could be things and stuff it could be people I've seen people that made their children their idol. Their children, they built their life around this child, even to the detriment of their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we need to be conscious of these things because we must seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That has to be the priority. I cannot properly minister to my children unless I am seeking first the kingdom of God. I cannot properly minister to my wife, be the husband that she needs me to be, unless I seek first the kingdom of God. As far as things and stuff, there's necessities and all and certain things that the Lord blesses us with, but I cannot keep that in the proper priority unless I am seeking first the kingdom of God. Well, Israel was to seek first the kingdom of God, and they were to be a light to the nations or they were to reflect the glory of God to all of the surrounding nations. But unfortunately, they didn't do that. Instead of reflecting the glory of God as they were separated from all the other nations, they became like the nations, and they became, well, we see a picture of God's judgment as they were brought into captivity. But it is a biblical fact that we see here in a reality in the past and future prophecies that God is going to judge the nations. That's a theme that goes throughout all of the scriptures. And it is a prophecy that exists even before us, that exists even in our future, that God will judge the nations. We see in Revelation chapter 19, verse 15, And out of his mouth, out of the Lord Jesus Christ, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. That would be his word. And with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. A winepress is used as an illustration of judgment. And you can imagine with the grapes and the juice and just with that red fluid, the idea is equating it with blood. These nations, so many times throughout history, though, have been used as tools for God's purpose, been used as God's tools for His purpose in nation Israel. And I think we are even experienced that even in our nation with some of the ungodly leaders and the attacks against this nation and even the decisions that we're seeing rendered in this nation. God's people who haven't stood up for the Lord and been counted We see that this sin and we've seen that these things contrary to the Lord are becoming even a common portion of the fabric of our society. And so we know that God used the nation Babylon and the people who were even more evil than Jerusalem to bring judgment upon them. And there's times if we look at the scriptures and even experience that God does that. He allows evil in the world to to be used to see his purposes come to pass. So, he's used Babylon and Assyria and many other nations against Israel. The sword of the east, it came against the Roman Empire during its fall in the form of Huns and barbarians and Vandals. It was the hearts of evil men that nailed Christ to the cross. And then we even had that wake-up call in September of, uh, of 2001 when the attacks came, and where did they come from? They came from the East. And there's kind of a common factor, factor there. From the, the Middle East, it, it's always been the source of where God brings the sword from for judgment upon those who should know better. And we received that attack from the East on 911. And unfortunately, although it was a wake up call, it was just a wake up call for a short period of time. And spiritually speaking, since that time, things have even gotten more evil. And then one day, there's going to be the Antichrist and the false prophet that are going to be this, put the squeeze on those who aren't raptured. God is going to use these most evil of people for his reasons and for his purposes as well. And so the commonality we see throughout all of that is that God is in control of everything that goes on. And when you see evil rise up and even flourish... God's in control of that, and God is even using that, again, for his reasons and his purpose, so that I can have a confidence. I can have a confidence when things are going well in my life, or when I see it seems like evil is prevailing, that all things are truly working together for the good. All things are not good, but all things are truly working together for the good. And so God has his hands upon all of creation, excuse me, and God is in control but make no mistake evil does not reign evil only occupies until it ju- it's judged evil does not reign it only occupies until it is judged and so Babylon they were used by God but at some point they became full of themselves they became very cruel to God's people And as they did, God brought judgment upon them. In the next chapter, in chapter 47, verse 6, God says, I was angry with my people. I have profaned my inheritance and given them into your hand. Now he brings a charge against Babylon. You showed no mercy. On the elderly, you laid your yoke very heavily, and you said... I shall be a lady forever. You'd say, and I'm sitting in an exalted place, so that you did not take these things to heart, nor remember the latter end of them. So God had a charge against Babylon. Now God used them, but unfortunately they took it too far. Zechariah chapter 2, verse 8 says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, He who sent me after glory to the nations which plunder you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. And again, I always had a little bit of a skewed interpretation of that, but the apple of somebody's eye, the apple of somebody's eye is their pupil. And what God is saying, when you attack Israel, it's as if you're poking me in the eye. And the idea is you're going to incur the wrath of God. And we've seen this with Israel throughout the ages. God has set his glory upon Israel, and as so goes Israel We see that so goes the reality of God in our lives. Things have happened in Israel that have happened nowhere across the world simply because God's hand is upon them. Most notably was their reestablishment back in 1948. This nation, I mean, just think of it. It didn't exist for close to 2,000 years and all of a sudden is brought back upon the scene. Something that is necessary for the events that we see in the end times to come to pass. And so I think that we can safely say, seemingly, nobody knows the day or the hour, but we're pretty close to that time. Things we need to take notice of, things that we need to understand. But God also brings judgment upon the nations, and God brought judgment upon Babylon, specifically upon Nebuchadnezzar's reign through his grandson Belshazzar in Daniel chapter 5, Verses 30 through 31, it says, And that very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. One night, the kingdom of Babylon tumbled. When God says it's time, it's time. And one day, God is going to say it's time. He's going to tell his son to go and to get your church. And it's it's going to be the reality of the rapture. And again, we need to be sharp. We need to be mindful. We need to be as those wise virgins who have oil in the lamp and are burning for the Lord. Because as these things are sure to happen, I'm ministering to people who are going to be going through the tribulation. I need to check my heart so that if the rapture does happen today, I'm going to be raptured. But the reality of God's word, we see as it has been spoken of before the fact and came to pass And the things leading up to Christ's coming, as they were spoken about and came to pass, the things that God has spoken of in the future, in our future, well, they're going to come to pass just as surely as those previously have. And so we know one day, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the church is going to be taken and the tribulation is going to occur. As much as depends upon me, I need to enter into God's plan in all faithfulness and all diligence to share God's word, to make disciples, to be that example. So in the things that we're looking at today, the first thing that we see in God's judgment, that's the theme, judgment against Babylon, is the futility of their idolatry. Verses 1 through 4. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols were on the beast and on the cattle. Your carriages were very heavily loaded a burden to the weary beast they stoop they bow down together they could not deliver the burden but have themselves gone into captivity now he's going to be showing the opposite end with the lord is your god listen to me o house of jacob and all the remnant of the house of israel who have been upheld by me from birth you have been carried from the womb even to your old age i am he and even to gray hairs i will carry you i have made and i will bear even I will carry and will deliver you. Bel is the Babylonian sun god. Nebo is the god of writing and, letter, and uh, learning. One is the god of nature, and the other is the god of intellect, two of the biggest things that man will set as an idol used to set himself apart from God. Now, when you see those who do worship some sort of image, of the time that image is in some sort of thing of creation or some kind of conglomeration of something that is in creation, animal parts stuck together to make some kind of false god or whatever it might be. Or, and I think we have this today, man will worship at the altar of his own intellect, of his own ability. And as man does that, we who are of the Bible, we understand the futility of that. Because in our day of salvation, our time of salvation, man could do absolutely nothing for himself and his intellect could not help him when it comes to his sinful nature. So concerning the worship of nature, that false God, we're told in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, for since the creation of the world, since the beginning, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things which are made, even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. And so just the presence of nature and the beauty of the things that we see, there's the evidence of God's hand in that. I remember when it was about four or five years ago, my wife and I with some friends went to the Grand Canyon. I'd never been to the Grand Canyon before, and I highly recommend it. It's only, what's about an eight-hour drive or something like that, but it's well worth the time. We were on the south rim, and you kind of pull into the parking lot. I've mentioned this before. And you can't really see the Grand Canyon when you pull into the parking lot. And you kind of walk up, and you come to a fence, and all of a sudden you come walking up, and it's laid out before you. And the amazing thing about it is, it doesn't look real. It, it's almost as if it's beyond your ability to comprehend everything that you're seeing. And, and, and you just sit there, and you just look at all of the detail And as a born-again believer, it's like, I'm seeing the work of the hand of God. You know, because here you can be so muddied as we're involved in life, and we see the same scenery all the time. You go to something like that, it's an amazing thing. Or you stand at the entrance to Yosemite, and when we went to Yosemite, the waterfalls were raging, and you had all of these, you know, half-dome and El Capitan and all of these things, and it's just like, whoa. And you just see the hand of God in that. Now, on the other hand, there's people who worship such things. But God is saying, you're seeing the spiritual value in this, and it should be pointing you to God. Instead, you have changed the image of God into the image of corruptible things, and now you're worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And so God is saying, in the scripture I just read, in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, you were without excuse. You, you, you saw the evidence of my being. And so those who worship at the altar of creation, worshiping creation itself, you're not going to have an excuse before God. And then there's the intellect. <clears throat> 2 Timothy 2.7, Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. And so my intellect, my intellect is only properly exercised based upon the existence of God and His given word. It's through God's Word that I filter my intellect in order to gain not a brainwashing, but an understanding. And so, again, there's man as he refuses to go according to God's Word. He works his intellect according to man's understanding. And again, he's brought to the point of despair, and he will be at that place that he is able to offer absolutely no excuse. So when it comes to idols in our lives, we must ask ourselves, In a time of trouble, and I really believe that this is the acid test. In a time of trouble, when you hit that time of despair, when there's a death in the family, somebody close to you, something that really touches your heart, when you enter into some kind of financial hardship or whatever hardship it might be, in a time of trouble, does your God carry you? Or do you have to carry your God? Think about it. Does your God enter into your situation and care for you? Or are you having to care for your God? Well, that's the contrast that Isaiah is speaking of here because he's telling Babylon during their time of destruction, what are your gods going to do for you? And he's telling them because he speaks from experience observing other nations. It says, Bel bows down and Nebo stoops. Their idols were on the beast and on the cattle. Your carriages were heavily loaded, a burden to the weary beast. They stoop, they bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. Their idols were taken into captivity. If man is able to take your God into captivity, what kind of God do you have? If your God is temporary, if your God can be taken from you, what kind of God do you have? If your God is a person and that person dies, he couldn't do anything for himself, what is he going to do for you? a job if you've made that your god and you lose that job what kind of god truly is that but it's been my experience that my god is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that i ask or i think and i can speak from experience for myself my wife can back me up on this it's been during the most difficult of times in our lives that we've truly seen the hand of god that we've seen god's provision we've seen god's protection and we've seen the love of God. And sometimes the only thing you have is the ability to cling to God. And God, God has been so faithful in our lives and in so many different ways and in so many different times. And so you can test this in your life and see the reality of God. Because, you know, the example of my father, very successful man, able to retire very early in life, had everything that everybody's working for, but when it came time for him to die, do you know what he did? He died, because none of his stuff could deliver him. He, he, he couldn't buy his way out of cancer. And a matter of fact, the Lord used that hardship, as most of you know, to bring him to a right relationship. But that's one of the things, you know, when you're looking death in the face, even if it's not your own, if it's somebody else, and my dad was lying there, and I knew he only had a matter of, it was only a matter of time at that point, I was thinking, A whole life, a whole life, and here's where it ends up. You know, this this life was not, we were not to cling to this life, we were to cling to the Lord and the and the promise that we have in the future in Him. But I'm just thinking, everything that He's done. This man was obviously instrumental in giving birth to me. This man was there every single day of my life. This man taught me and trained me. He wasn't a perfect man by any stretch of the imagination. This man was very successful in the, in the world's eyes, and now this man is going to die. And everything he's bought and purchased and done couldn't do a thing for him. The only thing he had, which he had received Jesus Christ even hours before that, was his relationship with the Lord. And you know what? As far as myself, if my dependency was upon him and when he breathed his last breath, then I would have been left wanting. But again, my hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ as well. And so Isaiah is telling them here, your idols, when you went into captivity, they went in captivity along with you. Jesus said in John 8, 34, Jesus answered, the most surely I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. And these people were a slave to these idols because they had forsaken the living God. But God is saying, now, even though they tried to carry their idols away to deliver them from the invading nations, God says, Listen to me, O house of Jacob. When he says listen, he's asking them to consider their past history. He says, And all the remnant of the house of Israel, because remember, there was the southern kingdom, they were still there. The northern kingdom had been taken off into uh, Assyrian captivity, but there was still a remnant there. It says, Who have been upheld by me from birth. Now he's speaking of birth of, of the nation. He's the one who delivered them from Egypt. He's the one who brought them through the wilderness and allowed them and enabled them to come into the promised land, who have been upheld by me from birth, who have been carried from the womb, even to your old age. He's saying, I am he. And even to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. Even I will carry and deliver you. In times of trouble, does your God carry you or do you have to carry your God? Our God will carry us. Our God will be there for us. He has in the past. He will in the future. John eight thirty six. if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Secondly, after the futility of their idolatry, now we have a picture of the faithfulness of the Lord, verses 5 through 7. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? They lavish gold out of the bag and weigh silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith and he makes it a god. And they prostrate themselves, yes, they worship. They bear it on the shoulder, they carry it, and they set it in its place and it stands. From its place it shall not move, though one cries out to it, yet it cannot answer nor save him out of his trouble. Remember that battle between Elijah and the prophets of Baal and what were these men doing they, they 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 had that contest that they built an altar and they set a sacrifice and the idea was they were to call down fire from their gods and whichever God answered that call would be truly the God and so you had the prophets of Baal and they were dancing and jumping and yelling and screaming and they were cutting themselves and bleeding they were doing everything they possibly could do to call down these gods to consume the sacrifice. But we know they had a big problem. A God wasn't able to do a thing for them. And it's the thing that breaks your heart concerning this nation. This nation who has cast off God from their, well, from their belief. What's in store for them? What's in store? What happens when the rapture comes? What happens when things are truly falling apart? What happens when they call upon their gods, and their gods can do nothing for them? I mean, this is something that we as born-again believers ought not to be able to relate to, absolute despair. What happens when there's completely and absolutely no hope? Again, that's the advent for suicide. Everybody that's ever committed suicide at some point came to the belief that there was no hope in their life we have hope in the lord jesus christ jesus said i go to prepare a place for you and where i am there you will be also and he's got so many other such rich promises and they're all built upon the past things that we've seen and the promises that god has given us and as god has been true right and sure in all of those i have every confidence in the promises that god has given me for my future Not only do I hold these things dear, but I make these things dear now to my children and my grandchildren, and I pray the generations even ahead of them. And so, yeah, you've got these idols, but you know what? This was just gold that you mined out of the ground, that you gave to a goldsmith, that he formed this statue, and now you're bowing down before it and you're worshiping it. Now, we consider when somebody's doing that, and if you would be there, you know, if you would have walked into a room, and somebody was bowing down before a statue, you would consider it to be absolutely foolishness. But people do that. They do it even today. There's even churches that perpetuate doing that. And the Bible, even churches that proclaim, to teach out of the Bible, but I don't know what they do with verses like this. Because it's absolute idolatry. And those statutes aren't, can do nothing for themselves, and those statues will not be able to do anything for anybody else. So I encourage you, take inventory of your life and compare the God of the Bible to the gods of your life, of your past life, I pray. Consider what whatever it is that you worship, whatever it is that you bowed down before, whatever it is that you put in between yourself and a relationship with God, and what were those gods, what were the gods of that day able to do for you? What were they able to do for you compared to what God has done? God... God's done some amazing things. There's a little list here in Ephesians. If you want to turn there, Ephesians chapter 2. I've got it all written down and marked out in my Bible for the purpose of remembrance. But first of all, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, speaks of what we were. It says that at that time you were without Christ. You didn't have the only means by which you could be saved. You had absolutely no hope. It says you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. The king of Israel is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's speaking of, uh, of being part of that. Not being Israel, but being part of that commonwealth, the, the king who has come through that nation. And we were strangers of the covenants of promise. You have no promise. And it goes on, and he's kind of hammering a little bit harder. You had no hope. Maybe you had false hope, but false hope when tested will prove to be no hope whatsoever. No hope means you had absolutely nothing to look forward to. And you were without God in the world. If you do not have Christ, you do not have the Father. Then verse 13, one of the biggest words in the Bible that we see from time to time, but, but, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We can now come near because we have been cleansed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. We not only have peace with God, we now have the peace of God. Now, what would be unsettling to not know what's going to happen in the future, to have your future just kind of a, a big question mark I know what my future is. I can't tell you in detail of all the days leading up, but I do know my future and my hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, regardless of what's going on, regardless of whoever it is we're going to elect to sit in the White House, even if it's some of the most undesirable, scripturally speaking, my hope is in the Lord. My hope isn't in a president. My hope is in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords skipping down to verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and those who were near. Some of us were so close, some of us were very far, but now we have that peace because we are there at that relationship with Christ. For through him we have both access by one spirit to the Father, verse 19. Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, and members of the household of God. Just as truly as those people who have gone before us and now are citizens in heaven, they're, they're in that place that Christ has prepared for them, we're just as a good or just as sure citizen as they are today. We just haven't made the journey, but we're there. For now, we sojourn. We're, we're here temporarily for God's purposes, but at one point, we will go to be with him, either through rapture or through death. And then in verse 22, in whom also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And God has caused me to be that tabernacle, that temple of the Holy Spirit. Why am I the temple of the Holy Spirit? Because it's that surety of the promises that Christ has given him. He has given me the Holy Spirit so that I know that I'm his and these promises relate to me. How do you know that you have the Holy Spirit? Now, we're talking about three differences of, or three uh, experiences of the Holy Spirit. There's first the Holy Spirit that spoke to you the day of your salvation, convicted you of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Then after that, there's the experience of the Holy Spirit who dwelled inside of you, and that's what's being talked about here. Now, there's also the experience of the Holy Spirit that comes upon us and enables us for ministry But we're talking about the Holy Spirit, and if you want to turn a page back, if you turned over to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, in him, in Christ, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. And so now I've got certain evidences of the Holy Spirit. There's the fruit of the Spirit, which is all wrapped up under love. There's the love for the saints. And there's that love that we have for God. That's contrary to the natural man. There's the conviction of sin, things that I know to be sinful, that if I think about it or if I even act upon it, there's that conviction. Well, the natural man will indulge in it. But no longer can a born-again believer, somebody who has the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of them, no longer are they able to do that. There's the ability to understand God's word. I read the Bible in an unsafe state and I didn't have a clue what was being talked about there. But now, because the Holy Spirit dwells inside of me, the Holy Spirit gives me understanding. Now, these things may seem like routine things or common things, but we've got to understand the reality of these things because it all lends towards the reality of the proof of our salvation. And because of that, you're able to have a strong confidence in this life. And then thirdly, back in in the book of Isaiah, chapter 46, we have facts that bear remembrance. Verses 8 through 11, I read it earlier. Remember this and show yourselves men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors, remember the former things of old. Now we've been underlining a series of scriptures. And I really encourage you to do this. I'm going to go through and read them just really quick. But I encourage you to do them, especially when you're confronted with the cults. It's important, especially, especially the Mormons. Especially the Mormons who will say that you know, there's many gods and they believe that they will be a god. Well, God just hammers this point home in chapters 44 through 46. In chapter 44, verse 6, it says besides me, there is no God. In verse 8 of chapter 44, is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. In chapter 44, I'm sorry, 45, verse 6, I am the Lord and there is no other. Verse 21 of chapter 45, and there is no other God besides me, a just God and Savior. There is none beside me. Verse 22, For I am God, and there is no other. Now we come to chapter 46, verse 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. And so he's hammering this point home. Why? Because back then, and even today, man has made a God of everything that comes down the pike. So remember the former things of old. Well, that's what we're doing right now. We're studying the book of Isaiah, written some 700 years ago. We we study the Old Testament so we can remember the times of old. Now, we're not Israel, but we see how God relates to man and how it works in our lives. Remember the former times of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end, declaring the future, from the beginning, before the future happens, and from ancient times, things that are not yet. Saying, my counsel, my word shall stand and I will do all of my pleasure. All of his will will come to pass. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have proposed it. Also, I will do it. So what's he talking about there, this bird of prey? He's talking about King Cyrus. He, he's speaking of the existence and the work of it he's going to do through this king 150 years before it happens. Now, if you want to back up to chapter 44, he speaks of King Cyrus in verse 28 and many other places, but he says, uh, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all of my pleasure. Now, back there, he's speaking of the rebuilding of Jerusalem, but nonetheless, God's speaking of these things so that future generations, so that you could look back and see once again, history is his story. It's all about God and the things that God has done. Psalm 33, verses 10 through 11, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Remember King Nebuchadnezzar's dream? Remember he he got all of his wise guys together and said, okay, I've had this dream, and I can imagine they're like, okay, we're going to have to give an interpretation of the dream, and They're probably thinking of whatever it is that they've told them in the past and all of these things, but he kind of changes gears because this man was king and he was king over many nations conquered, so he probably was a fairly smart man. And I would imagine he probably realized these magicians kind of got a free ride here and they're kind of taking advantage, but I don't want you to tell me the meaning of the dream, I want you to tell me the dream. And these guys were besides themselves, why? Because they were phonies and they realized we can't do that. And, and But he went, and he was having them executed, but Daniel stood up. And, and Daniel even admitted that, I can't do this, but I serve a God who is able. Daniel chapter 2, verses 19 through 23. And then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Dave, uh, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. (coughs) He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might. You have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's demand. So once again, our God, our God is able and he has ministered to man based upon his holy knowledge and his holy knowledge is that which has been able to keep his people but also put down nations. For us today to properly understand prophecy or when the Lord tells us the end from the beginning, we know of the glorious future that we have because again, it's been all laid out for us. And if you ever are studying prophecy or given prophecy, the way to know and to understand prophecy is always, it must be based upon Jesus Christ. It's always got to have Christ as its basis. We're told in Revelation chapter 19, verse 10, the apostle John writing, and I fell at his feet to worship him. Now he's speaking to an angel here that was revealing things to him. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And so that's how we're able to keep focused. If you keep your eyes on Christ, you're always going in a good direction. And then we have the finality of his promises. It's as if he is telling the generations, never forget. Verse 12. Listen to me, you stubborn-hearted who are far from righteousness. I bring my righteousness near, it shall not be far off. My salvation shall not linger, and I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Never forget the promises of his righteousness, three things, of his righteousness, his salvation, and his glory. We'll close with these things. First, never forget the righteousness of God. God's righteousness is the perfection of his person. Our righteous God is perfectly right in all of his intents, his thoughts, and his deeds. You are not perfectly righteous because not only are you wrong at times, you're also sinful at times. But God is absolutely righteous. Because God is righteous, he is morally consistent according to his laws. He is perfectly pure. If you would compare God's dealings with his people, both Israel and the church, you will see that he has acted according to his word time and time again. In this particular context, what we're looking at in Isaiah, he has told them, what's the first commandment? No other gods before him. And so he is bringing judgment, it's righteous judgment, because it is based upon his law. And so we serve a God that is absolutely righteous. What's the benefit of that? That he goes by the book. Now, this is New Testament and Old Testament. What is sin back then? Will always be sin. Now, what are we trying to do today as a nation? We're trying to change that which is sinful and bring it into mainstream. And those who stand against that are told that they're uh, discriminatory and all these other kinds of names and practices and whatnot. But the thing that I know is, is what God said was sin back then, is still sin. And sin carries ramifications. Why? Because God is righteous. Now, He does give grace. He gives grace based upon what Christ... See, it was because God is righteous that Christ had to come. Because, again, with the law, there had to be the repercussions from the breaking of the law, and it was Christ is the one who was able to satisfy this. Although we will never be a righteous person in this life, when we go to Him, his righteousness then will be placed upon us. It's what the Bible calls us as, or says as righteousness being imputed to us. When your righteousness is imputed, the day of your salvation, righteousness was imputed to you. It's as if you had this bank account, if you will, up in heaven, and the day that Mike got saved, his account was filled with the righteousness that one day will be placed upon me when I arrive into heaven. I'm not righteous right now, I make mistakes. I mess up, and sometimes I'm just flat-out rebellious. Well, maybe we should use Mrs. Pastor Mike as this example, but you know what I'm saying, because you're the same way too. We're all like that. But one day, sin is no longer going to have an effect upon our life, and our righteousness will be placed upon us. Revelation 19, verses 7 through 8 Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife, this is the church, has made herself ready and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then salvation. Salvation has always been the purpose for God's plan. The cross has been God's aim from Genesis and it is the standard all the way through even in end times. Think of it, when we have that picture in Revelation, Revelation chapter 5, of heaven and Christ receiving the title deed of the earth, how is Christ presented? In, in Revelation 5, 6, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. And there is the lamb, because we're speaking of how he is worthy to take the title deed of the earth. And so the picture is Christ as he has been crucified Upon that cross. Again, we have the cross all throughout the scripture because it's the cross that has changed the course of humanity. Zion was the place for the fruition of this plan, and we are the fulfillment of the plan. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. And then we see the glory the glory is the illumination of his person. God's glory is God's perceived holiness. Not perceived as if, you know, it's not really there, but when man perceives the total holiness of God, we see the glory of God. This is part of the reason why Christ needed to come so that we would be able to know God because you cannot stand in the presence of God and live. And so God brought His Son into this world born of a woman so that we would be able to comprehend God. Because God is so much other than we are, we could not comprehend Him, but now we see the Father through the Son. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, For He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The glory of God is the evidence of His presence with man. You have the glory of God through the Holy Spirit, who dwells inside of you. And we have this rich picture in the book of Exodus. Last part of Exodus is all the detail of the building of the tabernacle. Now, the building of the tabernacle, just as Israel was going out into the wilderness, was necessary because God was gonna dwell with his people. Now, we saw that all of these other nations, they had these false gods, and they were carrying them around on carts. But God desired to dwell with his people and to lead his people And so the tabernacle was being built as a dwelling place for God. So Moses was given all of this instruction and how to make all of this detail. And I would imagine if God gave me these plans for construction, I'd be very concerned. I'd be very concerned by building it just right. And I can relate to this because when I was an electrician, I did what was called design-build. They would tell me what they would want. Did a lot of restaurants in a restaurant. And I would draw the plans, I would submit the plans to the city, and then I would do the work. And so you draw the plans, you do the work, and comes the day of inspection. And the inspector comes, and you usually have the general contractor. And and so really, all of your work is being scrutinized. And if it passes, he signs the card. If it doesn't pass, he writes a correction notice. And it was kind of like getting a pass or fail test every other time you, you did a job. Well, I would imagine Moses would be very concerned because they're offering this to the holy God, and this is going to be a place that God dwelt in. So I know if I was Moses, I'd be nervous on this day that it was being presented to the Lord. In verse 33, it won't be on the board, but in verse 33 of Exodus chapter 40, it says, And he raised up the court all around the tabernacle and the altar and hung up the screen of the court gate So Moses finished the work. Now Moses didn't do the actual work, but he caused it to happen. Verse 34, now when it's done, it says, then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That's how they knew that God was dwelling inside of that tent, if you will, that tabernacle, that dwelling place. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle because Christ had not yet come to pay the price for sinful man. Moses couldn't enter into the presence of God. Verse 36, whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, the children of Israel will go onward in all their journey. So instead of sticking an idol in a wagon, God rose up before them. The glory of God rose up before them and led them. Verse 37, But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not journey until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day, and fire was over it by night, and the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And so because of this amazing existence of God, the point back in Isaiah chapters 46 and 47, we're not going to get to 47 tonight, but the point is this God, This God who has carried you and done so much for you, how could you possibly have another God that is fashioned by your intellect, through your abilities, but you have to carry your God? Because if you think back, it was your God for all of your life that carried you. Father, we thank you that we have such a compassionate and such a loving God. And Lord, we're all idolaters to some extent, or at least we have been, But now, Lord, we are seen as your precious children. We are seen, Lord, as those who have partaken of the blood of the cross. And because of that, Father, we just thank you and we praise you in this place tonight. We thank you for your word, Lord, these past stories that have been given for our learning tonight that we would know and we would understand the goodness of God. And, Lord, we thank you that you have filled us with your glory. And, Lord, I pray that we would conduct ourselves and care for ourselves, knowing, Lord, that we are possessors of your Spirit. And so, Father, make these things real in our lives. Drive them deep into our souls, that we would simply glorify you, Father, in all that we do. Lord, I lift up those who have come out tonight, that you would watch over and keep them. Father, as we're finishing a week and starting off into a new one, I pray, Father, that we will glorify you through all that we do, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you all stand, please?